This episode is sponsored by Truflation, independent economic and financial data in real time on chain at truflation.com and DYDX, the largest decentralized perpetuals trading platform. Check out the link in this episode's description for more information. Welcome to the Uncut Podcast with your hosts Stefan Rust and Omar Yahya. We're both entrepreneurs, investors in the tech and crypto spaces and have a diverse background in all things venture capital. In this podcast, you'll join us in one of our many conversations where we discuss tech, crypto, exercise, nascent markets, the structure of government, and how we can all move forward as a society. Episode 21. I'm back. Sorry, guys, for the absence, um, but Omar held the fort and, and really pulled something together with Soso, which was really good to see. And I'm glad to be back. It's um, great to have you. Yeah, Se- season, season finale. No better way to end it than by uh, tying what is an amazing legacy um, of uh, your, your father, who recently passed away, um, and uh, your uh, grandparents were heavily involved in the formation of the Hong Kong and the Singaporean government, uh, which was an absolutely amazing story that I was completely oblivious to until you sent me uh, the eulogy. And so this episode, uh, being the season finale, I think it is befitting of someone of your uh, father's caliber that this be uh, the last episode of the season and uh, we'd like to dedicate it to him, to his legacy, and perhaps you tell us all about that absolutely fascinating history uh, and take it from the top. Oh man, where do I start? <laughs> I've always kept this pretty quiet, right? I don't, you know, it's like, um, yeah, I just never, never really spread my mind to really actually highlight the fact that, yeah, my grandfather was you know, a, working for the British Foreign Office at the time. He was all over. He was in all these remote areas from T- Tobago, Trinidad, where what my was, his, was What was his name? Just, Sir just Robert name Black. Was... Sir Robert, Robert Black. Black. His nickname was Robin, as in the bird Robin, because he was bird flying everywhere, but it was working all the time. And he really was somebody with the people of the people, right? So no matter where he went, he had a reputation of really working and trying to build and support infrastructure for the people, Um, whether it was housing, food supply in in the Caribbean, um, and housing in Hong Kong, um, you know, giving Singapore back to Lee Kuan Yew um, at the end of his reign in the UK, in Singapore, things like that. Um, But yeah, he was an amazing character. I was so lucky to actually have spent some time with him. Um, he started, my mother was born in Trinidad, Tobago, where he was also working for the foreign office. Uh, I heard stories of, uh, second world war. He was a prisoner of war, um, in the Myanmar area, uh, where as uh, of the Japanese, um, yeah. And he, he never purchased Japanese products. He would wow. not talk to a Japanese ever again. He was so tarnished by his time in Burma as a prisoner of war um, that he just, yeah, just really hated Japanese and anything Japanese. 
Um, yeah, he was in on a boat. He went all the way to um, Japan. So after Burma, they sent all the top prisoners of war to prison camp in Japan, on Japan. Uh, he was in Nagasaki and was on one of the boats that left just before the A-bomb was dropped on Nagasaki in Japan. So he actually saw, well, so he says, I don't think that's actually true, but I think he says he saw the, the mushroom come off um, Japan and as he was on a boat to Australia where they had sent all the prisoners of war, they've just released them to Australia. Australia had a boat to go to pick them up and then took them to Australia. But so yeah. wait, let's just, let's just anchor this. So what was he doing in Asia in 1938? Or was he there? So he was there. He was in Singapore at the time, serving as, as a, yeah, in the foreign office or in the army, in the British army. Um, never really disclosed what he was doing, but I mean, <laughs> given the fact that he was in this, you know, in the foreign office uh, afterwards, was governor, you know, I think he definitely sort of was one of the intelligence communities across uh, Asia Pacific and seeing what was taking place across Malaysia, um, the Japan integration or invasion into um, Southeast Asia, especially. Okay, so he, the, before he became, the, when, when was he governor of Singapore? Do you remember? He was in the 50s. Okay, so, so this was post-war. Post this, this was post-war. Okay. So this was all so he was, war. He, he, was some been, sort of, he yeah. was some sort of attaché in yeah. Singapore before the war. So how did he end up being captured? He was on a, he was on a, I don't know what do you call them, missions, or they were off to, I mean, the British were pretty strong across the whole Myanmar, Burma environment, right? And the, the bridge of River Kwai, you know, sort of Kwai sort of comes across as a big movie that highlighted what the British were doing over there. Um, they were trying to support against the, the, the local Malaysians, the Burmese, um, and the Vietnamese against the Japanese. And, and so and, uh, they were helping them out. Empire and, of the Sun. Empire yeah. of the Sun, which is from the, the Chinese perspective, was also an absolutely beautiful movie. Yeah, that was another beautiful movie. With what's his name? That actor that was acting in, um, God, so many actors. Christian Ryan. Bale. Christian Bale, when he was like eight years old. I know, it was like super yeah. young. Just goes yeah. to show what kind of a career he had. But yeah, no, it's like, yeah, that was another era. That was when, but that was pre-World War II, right? That was, what was that after? That was, no, the, that was, I, that was the, yeah, that was the Japanese invasion uh, yeah. in, in China. I mean, there was so much history logged in there. And, and you know, it was interesting. I was just, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but there was an interesting um, UEF event or something like that where the Indian you know, um, some Indian prime minister or, or important influential, I don't know his title anymore, but he was talking about Europe should be wary of China and all the negotiations and the deals with China due to the fact that the Chinese don't forget. You know, they won't forget that Germany was, a, you know, had the Shandong province as a colony uh, and what it took for... China, they sent apparently 500,000 army military people to support um, 
Germany and something in order to get back Shandong province. I mean, it was like, I can't remember. I mean, I have to look it up again, but this YouTube video, I was just watching it on the plane. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's like lots of interesting history there and people don't necessarily forget the history. And I think Asians far more so in terms of remembering memory, remembering history uh, versus uh, us in the West who sort of try to move on and just think of the future and, and move forward. Um, nonetheless, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's an absolutely amazing, um, I think, cultural schism or cultural dichotomy. I mean, the the, the Allied forces decimated Berlin. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, the ultimate humiliation of the Japanese Empire, at, I think that was much more, from a culture perspective, it was a much more damaging blow um, to the Asian Western relationships. I think in, I think in Germany, I think in Germany, there was a lot of including people at the, including obviously um, ranking officials at the third Reich. At some point there was a shift in the mentality of this is not good for anyone. And there has to be some sort of coordination, some sort of cooperation um, so that this would not lead to the ultimate annihilation of Germany, period. Whereas with um, Japan, it was very, very different because um, they basically offer, so the Japanese offered unconditional surrender yeah. to the Americans with the exception, with the, with the very tiny exception of you must not touch the, the emperor. That was basically it. Yeah. You, you do any, everything else that you want, except the emperor themselves, they had to sort of be protected. The American side actually refused this at some point. And there's a lot of interesting political theory as to why that was the case. But the, the Americans, for all intents and purposes, could have accepted, quote, unquote, unconditional uh, surrender of Japan if they were to leave um, the chrysanthemum throne uh, untouched. But they didn't. And for very interesting reasons, they chose to pursue the strategy of um fire and fury basically um so it's quite interesting that you mentioned that dichotomy that in sort of yeah. in the west people just sort of moved on and to be fair that's much more western europe there's yeah. a lot of there are a lot of sour grapes in eastern europe that remain today that's true particularly, particularly the balkans yeah. um but that and it's also still tied between everything is going on between uh, i mean basically kosovo was a good example yeah. um ukraine oh, russia yeah. Sarajevo, yeah. these are all obvious examples. They're just not, um, I suppose, it's they're not that pervasive. Whereas the um, Sino-Japanese conflict was actually yeah. much, much older than yeah. like the Western Prussian conflict that sort of preceded World War II. At any rate, we digress, but I suppose today we're trying to digress as much as possible anyway. So back to you. Back to you. So, so let's let's. Where where were we? So he was uh, as part of some diplomatic mission, and then he yeah. was captured. He was captured where? He was captured in Burma. In Burma. Okay. He was a, a prisoner of war in Burma in a Burmese prison of war camp. Was was he was he a was he a combatant? He was a combatant. He was fighting. Okay. okay. So he okay. was in a, in a suit in a uniform. Um, he was serving the British government or British army, um, and. They got, I mean, basically food was really hard to come by. They were hardly ever any food. 
Um, they were struggling. I mean, they were eating brown grains of rice, right? Uh, raw, semi-raw cooked. Um, I mean, he wouldn't talk much about it because it was such a significant, made such a significant impact to his life and his personality. Uh, he did not want to talk about it. And, and if, when he talked about it, he wouldn't get teary, but he would really, you could just see the emotions would just bubble up. And he being proper British, you know, was always very controlled in his emotions and always jovial and jolly and <laughs> stiff, up, stiff upper lip. Well, he, he would have been in the prime of his life, right? Because he was born... Mm. Robert Black, he was 1906, so he yeah. would have been like 35. Oh, he was, he was, yeah, young, hungry, you know, he traveled the world. He, I mean, he was really, I mean, a seasoned individual. And, and anyway, you know, one thing led to the next. I think, you know, because he had survived that, he had built um, good intelligence and provided good insights to the foreign office that the foreign office decided to give him a, a good po po um, a position in running Singapore, right? And so maybe sort of 10 years later, he built enough credibility and trust uh, post-World War II uh, that he knew how the Middle East and uh, Southeast Asia would run and work. And so as a result, you know, Singapore was still a British colony at the time. He, that was a strategic shipping point um, for the British. It was a big trade position uh, in the Southeast Asian seas and all the resources. I mean, Indonesia had lots of resources, India, you know, Malaysia, all the spices, the herbs, the oil, the, the gold, all the metals, you know, sort of a lot of different resources in those markets. Tea. <laughs> um, you know, can't forget the tea uh, um, but yeah and so ultimately it was a really strategic port, port um, and he was made governor there um, he realized that there I mean and at the time there was also a very big British military base uh, on Singapore and there was a general I can't remember the general's name um who was very adamant in keeping Singapore a British-maintained colony. My grandfather, however, was very keen to build and transition Singapore back to the Singaporeans. Um, and, and how could we build allies in Singapore and Singaporeans? Who are those allies? And I think he built a very close relationship based on what I heard and, and, and what I've seen is with Lee Kuan Yew at the time, who was the grandfather, if you will, of Singapore. Um, and he, what was the, what was number 10's sort of official position at the time? Do you remember? Well, they were, they were, there were two different camps. I mean, it was, there was definitely a camp that felt it should stay British colony, right? The old guard. And there was a new guard that said, look, this is all Asia. This is all, you know, we don't understand it. It's a very different culture to what we're used to. And if we can build an ally in Asia, it's going to be much more strategic to us and of value, especially if we can have the groundwork be our, you know, sort of the British law foundation. It can have financial implications and benefits offshore finance, similar to what we've done in terms of the British mindset, similar to what the British had done in the Caribbean and all those BVIs and the Guernseys and all those little islands that can act 
as offshore havens for building out financial centers um, of benefit. And they wanted to see that same thing oh. happen in Singapore so they so could get their fingers into the Middle East, the Southeast Asia. So now that you mentioned it, I just did a very simple Google search and I realized how interesting this period was. Yeah. It's no wonder that this was very interesting was because he based it. So Sir Anthony Eden, yeah. um, who came right after Churchill in 1955, he uh, was 6th of April, 1955, until he left after the, um, the Suez Canal crisis uh, in January of 1957. Robert huge. Black was the, th was the governor, third governor of Singapore between June of 1955 and yeah. December of 1957. So he spanned exactly the yeah, Anthony yeah. Eden period, and and he left immediately after uh, Harold Macmillan was um, was uh, British Prime Minister. That is incredible. Well, no wonder there were uh, divided camps at number ten. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even know that, right? So it's like I, I just Google, I just put them next to each other. I was like, okay, he seemed like this is a very interesting period in time, and I googled who was uh, British PM at the time, and of course, Sir Anthony Eden. But it was such an interesting period of time, right? Remember, this was pre-mobile phones. This was pre-airplanes flying back and forth. These were, you had to do multi-hops on an airplane. You had to take ships for months on end to get around the world, right? And the world was just expanding. The first experiences were in cultural exchanges in World War II at such a scale you know, really brought the world together to really try and understand and break new frontiers so that we could establish relationships with all these new different cultures around the world, which I find super fascinating and vice versa, right? I mean, it opened the door to where we are today, I think, to a large extent, or to where we were 10 years ago. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, um, either way, then right after Singapore, my grandfather was seconded to Hong Kong to become the governor of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong at the time had a lot of problems. Water supply, it was really hard to get water. They had lots of droughts uh, during the summers and it was really hot. So he had to build reservoirs. Uh, he took a big undertaking to build reservoirs and strike a deal with China to supply water to Hong Kong. Not only that, also, it became really difficult because of the Cultural Revolution. There were a lot of immigration into Hong Kong. A lot of, not immigration, it was, um, uh, what do you call it, refugees uh, mm -hmm. fleeing China, coming you know, from Mao Zedong uh, and the sort of Cultural Revolutions where they were burning all of their history. They burnt their books, they burnt their culture, they burnt their art, music, um, and they killed everything and land rights to start afresh, right? Um, and and, a, and a, just an enormous exodus and a mass yeah. migration of people geographically. Yeah, huge migration, right? Um, anyway, and so Hong Kong, he had this huge influx and so he had to handle it and he created public housing. So rather than having people go into squatters all the time, how can we build infrastructure and enable housing systems that have water supply, that have sewage systems, so that we don't go through, because Hong Kong had gone through a, a huge, uh, I think it was the pest or cholera. It was one, of, I, I can't remember, it was one of these big, um, huge um, diseases that broke through Hong Kong. 
and struck down a lot of deaths. A lot of people died because of the disease. And the main reason was they didn't have sewage. They had all these people, they had squatters, but they had no sewage system. So all the shit and the pee was going out onto the roads and it was never being cleaned up properly or looked after. And ultimately that went into the water, people were drinking that water and then they got sick um, as a result out of it. Um, yeah, and so there was a lot of history there. So he built public housing. Um, which I feel the yellow revolution that took place um, in Hong Kong just at the beginning, uh, at the end of the last decade, um, at the beginning of the last decade, um, resulted as a result of housing crisis. Because when the Chinese took over or the Hong Kong um, new governors took over themselves, reporting to Chinese, they neglected the fact that we needed to continue public housing. Why? Because public housing was an enablement for people, students, PhD students that could now all of a sudden afford to get a public housing, get into the pop property ladder and move up in the equation. Whereas I had PhDs, uh, AI scientists working for me, still living at home at a salary that just wouldn't allow them uh, to, you know, afford any kind of housing. All the meanwhile, in China, in Shenzhen, with all the new redistribution of land use rights, everybody, farmers were going like crazy, were making billions, selling their property to the next factory owner across the street, right? And so that was really a, a bit of a, a faux pas in, in Hong Kong's evolution post uh, this colonial era uh, where they were part of the British Empire. But either way, my dad then in, I think it was early well, 60s. Hold on. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. So he, he based, Robert Black basically, um, he ended his tenure. He went back to Britain in 1964. Yeah. Yeah. So now Heinz Rust comes into the picture. So walk us through that. So my dad, um, so I, and I think I got a lot of the adventurer bug from him and <laughs> adventure, adventure in my, our world today is digital, right? So how do we for, you know, venture into the digital realms and, and, and look for new innovations out there. But my Heinz, um, was in, he grew up in landlocked Switzerland. Um, but he was always an adventurer. So he loved climbing the Alps on the weekends and would go every weekend, plan meticulously what mountain to climb, how I would climb it, what the weather were, what the weather was like. And remember, this was days when you had to open up the maps and look at different charts <laughs> on the gradients yeah. and raising, Top, right? There was no topologi topological maps, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you had to plan your weekend with your backpack, your food. You had to carry it all with you. You'd take trains. You'd go on a Friday night. You'd walk up to the mountaintop at Friday so you could start your climb at maybe 3 a.m. to get to a certain point by whatever time before the sun would set so you could then go and make it to the peak in the next morning or overnight and before and make it back down again, right? You always, everybody always forgets you have to come back down. Right. And that <laughs> takes a while too, right? It's not. And, oh, no, and that's, roll down the and that's so, actually the, the dangerous part. The dangerous part is going down, not going up. Exactly. And, and then, yeah, it's like, that's where you get injured. You're tired, mm -hmm. you're hungry, your lack of oxygen. Um, all of those elements come into play 
in the decision and it's harder going downhill right you of course because of it's 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 all the eccentric motion right you have to basically put the brakes down when you're moving it's easy i mean it's easy to go up these are the, when you use your your quads the same way you normally use them when you train or when you you know sit down stand up you're using them sort of as designed but when you're yeah. going downhill it's the eccentric motion it's i mean you could be a world class a world class uh, uh, strength athlete and still um, not have uh, uh, very strong hamstrings, for example. So, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, and so anyway, that he sort of then went to study engineering um, uh, as Where? a result in Burgdorf, Switzerland, which is a okay. It's a, I mean, it's 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 regionally it's it's a famous school, and I think you know it's famous because of course he was there. I don't know, man. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I think in the engineering community, people knew know that school, um, especially in in Switzerland. Um, but at the time, uh, this was when also countries like Australia or Canada were looking to build out infrastructure. They realized the vastness of the territories. And they didn't have enough engineering talent. So they were trying to attract engineers to the specific countries in order to help them build roads, build flyovers, trains, and design those. And then what would it take to build a tunnel to get this train ra railroad track through this mountain range in order to connect the countries uh, and the country together? Um, so they, and he and his buddy, uh, tried to emigrate to both of those. The selling point was Australia paid for the travel to get to Australia. Um, okay. And so all of a sudden... It was, uh, liquidity mining. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, you have to do the investment up front to get the talent to do the liquidity mining. Anyway, so, yeah, so they, they um, took a boat to get there, right? So you had to take boats and you had connecting boats. Um, so you couldn't do it all in one, and you go through the Suez Canal. Um, then he went down through, and this, yeah, again, my dad was born in 1937. Remember, this was after Second World War, right? And then just during the Second World War, mm -hmm. actually just before, right? Just before, before just before. Just before it broke out. And I remember he would also, you know, they would have food rations in Switzerland at the time. Um, they would live outside of cities, so they moved all of the city population, especially the kids, into the countrysides so that they would be working in the farms and having food and access to food in the farm so the youth would not have this disruption to them uh, and not be prone to air attacks or if, in the event that that was going to happen. Anyway, so he got to Australia, you know, worked around there, did some roads, some projects as a, as a construction engineer over there, but got bored very quickly. And I think he then was looking for more adventure. So he went up the Pacific coasts and all the islands on the Pacific uh, on his way to Hong Kong, um, stopping over in some of the islands and then building a cable car on the island. Uh, you know, sort of an American Samoa. There was a hill overlooking the, the, the city. And so he built the cable car to go up there, um, but stopped over in Hong Kong where he met my mother. And my mother was there living in Hong Kong. And she was, yeah, I mean, the son of my grandfather, right? The, a daughter, I presume. Um, Bar, let's see, it says it right here. Barbara mm -hmm. and Catherine. Yeah. So... 
This was which year exactly? Must have been about 54, 55. Uh, okay, so this was when Sorobak was still in Asia. Yes, he was still in Asia. So it was about 64. Sorry, not 54, 64, 65. Oh, six, wait, sorry. So, wait, so 64, Black, 64. this is 64. He was in Hong Kong, but he would have, this was the year he left because Just, he was the... He was the colonial secretary of Hong Kong from 1952 to 1955, after which he built the uh, university infrastructure in Hong Kong. So he actually helped build the University of Hong Kong, and there's a college, University of Hong Kong, named after him. And from... I have a picture of me there at the the 50th year or 75th year of that school or something. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. So, okay, so, okay. So they, they were still there, and that's when your father met just before, uh, yeah. you, just before they had left. So did, did they all go to Britain after, or what happened yeah, then? Yeah. So they stayed there, um, and I think um, my dad then asked my mother to marry her, and my grandfather had moved back to the UK, so they got married in London, so in the UK. Um, okay. and a lot of their friends went to London. I don't know how they went to London. Did they go by boat? Did they go by plane? I don't know <laughs> what we did in those days. Um, Probably a plane at that time. Plane at that time. But yeah, and so they then were looking what to do after they got married. Should they come back and stay in Europe or not? And then what they decided was the opportunities were nowhere near as vast in Europe as they were in Asia. There was so much in terms of engineering challenges, opportunity. And so my dad decided to buy a car. I think it was a Renault 4 and drive with that car all the way back to Asia. So they drove. Yeah, in- but, but also remember, it probably it, it was probably the quagmire that um, the British government had in the 60s. Remember the, the devaluation? basically a soft default um, uh, of the British pound happened in 1967, right? So this it, it, this sort of made sense. Right? Leading up to 1967, Britain was a very tough place to, to try and sort of, you know, prosper in. Prosper. So it was, prob- it was probably like a no-brainer at the time. And yes, I mean, anyway, yeah. So I think, I mean, I, yeah, most probably, obviously it was. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't have gone and taking this nice journey, but they drove by car in those days, right? I mean, you drove, they drove like to have Iran, Pakistan, you know. Do you, remember what the, do you remember what the model of the car was? I'd like to yeah, have one of those. It was a Renault 4. I mean, it's like a Dojvo, you know? It's like a, a Peugeot two-cylinder engine type thing. <laughs> two-cylinder two engine as well. I think it may be four-cylinder I mean, at the time. It's, it's so, basically like, a motorbike. It's basically a... <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing uh, yeah and so yeah they, so they went through all these uh, i mean uh, there's some obscure pictures in terms of what they'd seen and you know my dad was also a bit into technology so always had a camera with him um you know even if it was a wind-up camera and you have to you know you know he, yeah he would he'd love to do all these little things where he would then self um what do you call it? develop your film yourself and put them onto paper uh, with the chemicals, he would always go buy the chemicals, find someone where he could do it, and then do this stuff. He would do um, 
yeah, anyway, later on in life, he'd have 35 millimeter cameras, videoing everything, and then editing it down together, cutting the film and gluing it together. <laughs> like, that's why, the, if for anyone who doesn't know, that's where cutting and pasting comes from, right? <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. true. Um, yeah, no. So, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of, yeah, you know, they, they met, got married, moved back to Hong Kong. Um, yeah. And he got a job at a engineering firm or architectural firm, Palmer and Turner, P&T, which was a really big, um, mm -hmm. architect firm. Um, I think one of his mentors was a guy called Ian Campbell, Australian, who was a partner there as well. Um, or was he English? No, we moved to Australia or his wife was Australian. Can't remember. But um, yeah, and so took him, he took my dad under his fold, but then my dad ended up being the engineer behind all these high rises, these buildings that actually went high up in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was going through this boom of property and development, land development, and it was all going up. And they needed engineers that understood what it meant to facilitate and house this many people vertically water supply, the thickness of the piping, the electricity, the breakdown of electricity into the building, the metal, how to bend the metal accordingly so that you can have rotating restaurants at the top of a hotel in Hong Kong, the first in the world. And, you know, um, yeah, things like that were being built. And my dad was integral in the whole Hong Kong community in building that up, as well as building roads, uh, infrastructure, whole new housing developments in whole new parts and segments of, of the island, working together with a lot of the indigenous people, um, as well as a lot of the Shanghainese that had moved from Shanghai after the Cultural Revolution to Hong Kong and built that as their trading hub uh, for trading between China and the rest of the world. Um, yeah. And so, wait, so are we, I just, I just Googled this. Are we talking about the same? So Ian McDonald Campbell, he was the, the chief executive at the, um, uh, British railways board and the Scottish board of British railways as well. And he was involved in all sorts of things. It doesn't say anything about Australia here though. Possibly, possibly. I, I, I don't know. I mean, by the names, it sounds more, uh, yeah. Ian Campbell. I don't, yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound necessarily Australian. Could be Scottish. Uh, it was a very British firm. But his, I remember, I, all I know is after he retired, he went to Australia and his wife and children okay. were all in Australia. I think, yeah, I don't know. That's that's all I know. I never, yeah, I never, I never he, knew him. <laughs> he did, yeah, he, he does certainly, um, does certainly fit the bill, but something for the listener to, to try and figure out. But at any rate, Carry on. But I think also, I mean, there was definitely a bit of an advantage with my mother, who was the grandson, was the daughter of the former governor. There were a lot of doors that opened, a lot of relationships that were connected in those days. And very similar, like any emerging market or emerging industry, you know each other, right? I mean, it's like crypto. We all sort of know each other somehow, uh, and we managed to build and establish relationships with each other. Um, throughout this period and they did the same and they trusted each other to build buildings and, and high rises and they were needing uh, good designers and good um, engineers to actually convert that design and I think my dad was famous for I met one of the top architects I remember him saying it's like I knew I could put any design in front of your dad 
and he would always make it happen. I would never have to think twice. It would be Roger, right? <laughs> I would just give him the design and he would always figure out what metals to use, what comp composites to be able to build this together, what infrastructure I needed underlying it to facilitate this kind of traffic and volume, what the loading would be in terms of cement and, and etc. But you always knew that he would get it done. And for the... Uh... For the listener that uh, isn't familiar, this is a joke that Seth and I were saying. Roger really means um, it's an acronym for received orders given, expect results. It's sort of uh, it's a manifestation of extreme ownership when when you're working on something and and uh, somebody delegates something to you, you sort of see it through from A to Z without uh, um, without any uh, uh, mishaps or or if there are mishaps, you sort of take care of them yourself. You sort of own the the task. The exact opposite to the hot potato philosophy. <laughs> the hot potato, another term that we coined, yes, which is this sort of the we were saying if you're of the hot potato mentality, you probably you're probably more suited to working government. This idea of it's off my desk, it's, I don't have to worry about it, somebody else's problem. Sort of the opposite of extreme ownership. Um, but we, we digress. C carry on. So <laughs> well, I, I this is at some point, but um, yeah. he's uh, so yeah. now. How old is he? He must be. He must be in his mid thirties at this point. Yeah, he was. He was about. Um, yeah, his his mid thirties. Um, okay. And yeah, and so he really. I mean, yeah, he really loved what he did um, and enjoyed the lifestyle that came with it and his ability to. Yeah, I suppose he had a, he had a good high 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 level of EQ and then a high level of 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 yeah Roger execution right he would deliver and was very strict around and disciplined in adhering to the rigor of execution that he put in place um, even even as, as as children I mean we had to. You know, we were living on budgets. Our whole uh, weeks were planned. Uh, you know, we had, uh, yeah, we, you know, what, how many hours of television we could watch at the time when television just started opening up. We I was going to say, did you have television yeah. growing up? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this was, this is late 80s. So it was um, a fun time. Oh, by the way, I just watched this movie, The Air. Have you seen it on Prime Video? There's I a, it's really cool. It's about Michael Jordan going to Nike and the cording, oh, okay. the cording of Michael Jordan by Nike. By, but then at the well, same I read, time, I, I read the book, uh, Michael yeah, Jordan alive and they talk oh, about yeah. this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Michael, no, not, not the film, not Phil Knight's book. So the, yeah. the biography of Michael Jordan is called the life and they talk about all of this in great detail. Oh yes. I know there's a Matt Damon. Is that the movie? Ah, it is. Okay, I know what you're referring to. Yes, 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 yes. So they talk about that character a lot in, in the book. And they talk about how Michael Jordan, obviously, he was, by age 21, he was making yes. more than the top all NBA prospects combined. His salary in the NBA, in fact, he famously never negotiated it because he thought it beneath him. 99% of his income was coming from the Nike deal. 1% was coming from the uh, from the NBA. So he, like, he wouldn't even sort of negotiate. But yes... Read the book and watch the movie. Apparently, I, 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 it's on my list of movies to watch, but I haven't gotten to it. But apparently, it's a very good movie. It's really well done. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was really, really, okay. 
fun, good, good, good to watch. I mean, maybe if you've read the book, it's never as good as the book, and it's never as detailed, right? But it, but it's but it's still um, encompassing. And I think the interesting thing that he did was he negotiated a revenue share in the shoes sold. He negotiated mm-hmm. pay me in shares of Nike, not in he's, I want it, skin in the game, right? He still he makes five percent. Five percent royalties. He makes hundreds of million dollars a year today. I guarantee you, after this movie, the Air Force Jordan is going bang. You know, it's like another rocket sales. He's just gotten more money for his family trust. No, but 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 that's the thing that the Air Jordans were making money when he was a twenty-one year old. This was back in the day. It wasn't even like this is before the McDonald's stuff. This is before like Nike became a thing. He was making money because he he was a superstar. Yeah. Not because of because of Nike. In fact, this was considered a really risky deal on the Nike side. Yeah, because they were basically going all in with one guy, twenty-one year old, unknown, uh, random dude from North Carolina. Um, so it was a pretty pivotal moment in the history of Nike, let alone in the history of Michael Jordan. And you'll like you'll like the movie. I really, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, well, um, uh, thanks for bringing it up. I I literally forgot. I just, um, which, anyway, why did I bring that up? Because it reminded me in the 80s, there was this real gung-ho mentality, right? There people, and, and it was all out of the U.S., all of these companies coming from the U.S., toppling and toppling all the installed base and all the, these new established companies, right? It was, it was the crazy cowboy days where you hustle, beg, borrow, steal, innovate, you know, Go, go. It was everything, anything is possible sort of mindset and the mindset of abundance, right? Which was really, um, yeah, and that was just good to see in that movie. And, and, and it comes across in terms of trying to paint the picture of what the time was and what period in, you know, in, in the evolution of history and the world we were at at that point in time. Um, but yeah, no. So coming back to my dad, I think. You know, at that period of time, building up all these buildings, um, he was, again, of the mindset that, you know, it's like, just continue to live life your fullest and really enjoy all the abundant features that the planet, were, you know, sort of offers. He got into sailing. He was really competitive in sailing. Um, and, and Hong Kong sort of started, he created the whole sort of Hong Kong sailing community where they went to the Admiral's Cup. They went to Clipper's Cup. They went and sailed all these weird races that um, that were on, at the time, global stages, right? Pre-America's Cup. Um, and then, yeah, after sailing, he got bored, got into flying, and so started flying the planet. So he drove around the world in a car, sailed around the world on a boat, and then now he's flying around the world on a plane. And so, and then in a helicopter, right? And so he managed to sort of fit all of this in and build his lifestyle around being able to execute all of that at the same time being very successful, right? And it was really, yeah. So it was um, interesting period, uh, very sad. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I laugh about it now and I'm happy about it and you know, it's like, but he lived life to the max. He enjoyed it. He would have wanted to go as fast as he went. Um, he was never one to shy away from speed and, and getting things done and, and moving quick and getting on with things. And so- well, I, I certainly see where you get you get it from. <laughs> yeah no definitely okay. rubbed off definitely rubbed off i can definitely so so this puts us in the middle of the 1980s yeah are we still in hong kong uh, as a sort of residential base 
I mean, he's, so he's just in Hong Kong. He lived in Hong Kong for okay. Over so, years, right? so you 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 grew up in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, and then I left when I was about thirteen. I think uh, I was a spoiled kid, you know, sort of yeah, just not really very disciplined. And so he felt I needed a bit more discipline. And or my I was about to say, it sounded like he he would have been distraught at that, or at least it wouldn't be sort of befitting of his character. So okay, so. When exactly? I'm 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 going to ask you something about the British handover of uh, yep. Hong Kong. But that was later. That was that was probably ten years later. So what, at age thirteen, where did you go? I was there. I was in Hong Kong as well. I was in Beijing. Okay. I was living in Beijing at the time. Okay. I had I I set up. You know, I wanted adventure. Right. I was bored in Switzerland. I mean, it's like so stable here. It's really. It's like. Dude, I want an adventure. Where's the Wild West? And so wait, so wait. So you you went to boarding school, age thirteen, in Switzerland. Yeah. yeah. Until age. Until age about 25, 26. I went to. I started. I finished boarding school. Hated school. Went to work right away, and then I got accepted to university. So two years after that, and my boss at the time said, "Go to university. You know, it's like it's the best fun you'll ever have. You got time, right? And at the moment, otherwise, you're just going to be working all your time. So, you know, in Switzerland, university doesn't really cost much if you get accepted. So I got accepted. So I went in. The only thing you need to pay is your upkeep, right? But I would work every holiday, and you in Switzerland, you get paid pretty well if you work night shifts, and and I would always take the graveyard shift, right? Because it paid the best, and I'd get like forty bucks an hour. I mean, it's crazy. Forty bucks. Then forty bucks an hour. Then, then, yeah, that's incredible. That's I mean, it's like I, I mean, okay, and then twenty bucks on a construction site because you'd go. I mean, really, it was really amazing. But uh, and then I do baggage handling. I would do yeah, sort of ripping up roofs and then insulating roofs again at warehouses, collecting the copper because the copper of the insulation- still today very valuable, super valuable. And we then collect that, bring that back to the you know the refining agent and then bang you know we make some money off that and that would buy some more beers and we drink and beers at nine o'clock in the morning <laughs> on the rooftop on, on the, the rooftop, rooftop. so for your break because we've been working since 7 a.m right so you work from 7 to 9 then you know 9 30 to 12 or something like that it's like shawshank redemption style it was definitely fucking wild and it was always with with yeah, I was always working with alongside Spanish people, Italian people, and there were all these different languages. And but the discipline they had and the sense of achievement, right? We got to get this job done. We got to close it. And the discipline that they had at doing that was always something that they never. I felt they were were not given credit for, right? Why can't they do that at home? If they can do it's that the, in Switzerland, you the, know. Well, like, it's the immigrant mentality. It's it's I left in order to pursue a better life, and if it is to be, it is up to me. I'm not expecting anything from anyone. I I have to own it. Yeah. So extreme ownership. That's the immigrant mentality. It's really yeah. Every, exactly. Everyone everyone who who left where they grew up to go and pursue an opportunity and has been successful. This is immediately intuitive to them. You don't have to explain it. But this is, this is, it's so true, right? And that's why I think everybody that's left home and left their home village, their home country to go and find new opportunities has always been successful to a certain extent because you have to, you don't have a network that you have to create a whole new network on your own, right? And, but I feel that's why in a way 
this decentralization is such an important characteristic, right? Because we feel very close and socialistic in a way with friends and family, right? We always support our friends and family, right? They want, and especially if you're an immigrant, because you only have your friends and family and you're only as good as those friends and family that you have around you. Uh, and the friends actually become your family in a way more so than your family in some cases if, you, if they haven't all emigrated themselves. And so that whole philosophy of then, you know, sort of the further distant you get from a centralized authority, the, the less, the, the more libertarian you become. <laughs> it's well, I think just, also in, in, in some capacity, you just, you solve for the agency problem. You just, yeah. you completely remove yourself from the, from your surroundings and you say, basically everything that I can get is, is, is up to me. And to me. there's, there's no, there's no there's this idea of like hyperbolic discounting of the future that most people suffer from um, that leads to some sort of complacency in the short term. Whereas people that tend to sort of immigrate, they tend to fundamentally have a longer term view on things. This idea that short term suffering is just part of the process. Whereas people who tend to not be exposed to that sort of environment, the short term suffering, they feel like something's wrong. I should be immediately thriving. I'm 24 years old. I'm working in investment bank. I should be a millionaire by now. Um, there's this, this idea of the grind that is just abhorrent to them. And I, I, I have some nuanced opinions on this idea of the grind, but I think immigrants in general tend to have this idea that long-term progress only comes from short-term uh, effort and short, and you just have to grind in some capacity. It's just part of the process. I, I, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, it's like given... Yeah, it's, it's, anyway, I, I just, sometimes it's always, yeah, that, that Asian effect. And, and there's this element, though, that you still feel a certain national, I don't know, do you, do you still feel a part of, oh, I'm proud to be Swiss, or I'm proud to be Egyptian, or I'm proud to be American, or... There's still, or I go back for, unless I'm proud, that's not a, a good word, but there is a way, you know, where you feel a connection to a culture that was built up inherently from that specific, do you find that? Or I, I never found that because I feel- I, like I never, I never either. I think, I think with the sort of path dependence that you and I both had, I think we feel- a deep sense of loyalty and duty to those that have helped us along the way. But, but these people were from all around the world and from all walks of life. And yeah. so to tie that to some sort of national identity, is just, it's, it's different when you've sort of jumped around the world and met all sorts of interesting people. And some of them have helped you along the way. It's just a different, you get much more attached to the entrepreneurs in life, as opposed to people of a particular identity. You'll be like, oh, my people are the people that are trying to hustle, the people that are trying to get somewhere in life, the the disciplined, the um, the ambitious. These are the kinds of people that you feel protective of and feel attached to. I think we all need some sort of uh, sense of community. It's just whether that community is sort of bestowed upon you just by sort of virtue of birth, or is it something that you go out and seek and find? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I felt I never... 
I just never had that. And there was always this element where everybody I spoke to, oh, you have to go back to your cultural roots and stay connected with your culture. And, and I just never felt that. I just never, I don't know. It was just really weird in yeah, a way. It, it, it never occurred to me as well. But again, I think it's just a byproduct of the process. It's just not something that sort of sticks in your face. I, I think the idea of cultural roots, uh, this hum, almost hum, like homogenous sense of uh, culture, it makes sense if you're going to try and live amongst a certain culture. So you sort of have to uh, soften up your, your edges kind of thing. But if you're not, and if this is not something that you're trying to do, I don't see why that's useful necessarily. Also, since it's basically a lottery, you just happen to be born in Hong Kong. I mean, yeah. what does that have to do with anything? Your father had, you know, happened to be Swiss. What does that have to do with anything? Your grandfather from the other side happened to be whatever it is that he was, clearly, uh, Scottish, uh, whatever. So, like, what does that have to do with anything? And it was an interesting time. I mean, if you look at times, right, on the one hand, you were working for a company, right? It was the companies that were doing these expansions and they were moving out, right? Unless you were, and then they were followed by these governments that came to in to protect because they had a bigger portion of their population there somewhere. You know, that's sort of, in my view, how a large portion of, 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 I don't know, trade, global, globalism sort of started taking its impact. Um, anyway, I don't know at, what I'm doing. At, at any rate, so take us back. So now we're in, so you're age 25. That puts us at what year? Where is Heinz at the time? He's in, he's in Hong Kong. Um, still in Hong Kong. This is still in Hong Kong. Um, okay. Now, right. The, the British handover. Walk yeah. me through the British handover. 97, we were at the British handover. Yeah. So I was in Beijing at the time. I just launched a mobile network startup in Beijing. Um, and we, yeah, we were scaling in four different cities, building up mobile networks for mobile phones. Um, and Hong Kong was, this was July 1. July 1st, yeah, 20, 97. Yep. 1997. And so I then flew down to Hong Kong and there was this big ceremony. And I was about to say, there's this very famous ceremony. That it actually was quite nice. Um, it's a video it was, you can see on YouTube. I think it was, it was politically not very smart of the Chinese to send the PLA across the border in this whole convoy. <laughs> we're taking it over. Um, but I guess they didn't care and they were proud of it. And so, you know, they did that. And the the British sort of left on a, on a tiny boat. And it was, it was a very sad moment though. It was really, I remember it was just, you know, seeing the flag go down and the other flag go up. So uh, what, what was the zeitgeist at the time? So for the expats, for locals, um, I don't know what, what there was category a you fell under. There was a, a, a sense of opportunity. Oh, we're now being a part of China, greater Bay area. This whole place is going to boom. We're going to be open. Trade with China is going to do well. It was around the time of the WTO. China had most favorite nations in, in, in the WTO. So there was a lot of import-export that was going to go happen. And so I think there was a part of the community that felt really, wow, this is going to be great. There's going to be lots of opportunity. And then there was a part of the community that felt sort of, Ooh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, the English especially, right? They're giving up a, oh, the rule of law, right? We had Patton was the last governor 
of Hong Kong, and he was trying to make sure that Hong Kong was going to become a full-fledged democracy um, and, and tried to put in place specific regulation that was going to allow Hong Kong to be a full-fledged democracy. Chinese didn't like it. They reneged it. They rugged it. Um, and then they put in their own model, right, where they can choose from two or three people that the Chinese approve, and they can have votes associated with that, right? But their vote only counts 0.1% of, of the full voting tally, right? So didn't really so, matter. So how yeah. long did it take for the zeitgeist to change from 97 to whatever period? How long did that sort of structural change take until people realized, okay, this is a very, very different Hong Kong or prospects of Hong Kong than what we thought? I mean, it only took, it really only happened after the umbrella revolution, right? Really, that's when people started realizing they were croaching in, you know, different laws were just creeping up, creeping up. And then that security law that came in where they can eavesdrop, they can stick you in jail for whatever reason, that really, that, that blew, that really showed and then the people revolted against that, right? And a lot of people, Hong Kong people actually left again, right? They left Hong Kong to move to places like Aberdeen or other parts of the world that were looking for new immigration to keep their cities alive. And um, yeah, you know, that it was really until that revolution that really started to open the eyes. And more and more after that point in time, it just started to open up more and more. And you could just see the change that was taking place in Hong Kong with a stronger lean to to mainland China, right? Which which it is. I mean, it's 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 now part of mainland China, and it, realistically, it's another city in China with certain privileges, you know. But but those privileges are eroding really quickly, and it's just another city in China. Yeah, and and, and it's going to be the experimental city of China, right? So crypto experiments and all these other things that they're going to be doing. They're going to play it out in Hong Kong, see how it goes, how the West reacts, learn from that, build out regulations associated with that and, and leverage it. And Hong Kong also understands British law, understands global finance as a result out of that, understands all these different structures in terms of how to set up the right kind of financial structures and, and negotiate within the legal frameworks that are given to you and participate in the necessary bodies in order to get your way across the line. And I think China's going to you know, take that in and leverage that to the maximum that we have not seen before. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment. If it's successful, they can sort yeah. of leverage that a lot. I mean... Yeah. Or and if it's not successful, it's it's sandboxed and then they just sort of move on. It's a yeah. it's a free lottery ticket in some capacity. Uh, okay, so what was Heinz's thinking at the time? Did, did he consider going elsewhere? What was your mother's thinking at the time as well? Where is she in all of this? Yeah, I mean, my mother. I mean, they were both there. I mean, they'd done most of their work. Most of their friend networks were all in Hong Kong. All their friends and their community, and still today, very strong community sense of community feeling and it was everybody helps out everybody it wasn't really rely on the state to look after us it's we'll come and drop by when you're sick we'll come and drop by food we'll pick up anything for you we'll help you out so there was a very tight-knit um, community there and my parents never wanted to leave that and still today i don't think my mother wants to leave that and and why would you it's so strong it's so ingrained 
um, the sense of loyalty, the sense of respect um, is, is really strong there, which is super valuable, it, despite all the changes that's taking place, you know, at, at the governmental sort of side and the regulatory frameworks and stuff like that. And from a, a business um, perspective, um, Heinz was sort of already... Yeah, in, he was, in, he's, I mean, he didn't need I, to work anymore. He, yeah. he was, yeah, it was, I mean, he, yeah, he would, he'd retired. He's cruising. Okay. Yeah, he was cruising. He retired early at about 45, 50. He stopped working um, and then just enjoyed, you know, flying the planet and as much as he could, spending time uh, with family and, and with friends. Uh, that was really what he wanted to do. Okay, so tell us about his sort of later years um, and then maybe the last, the last year or two as we wrap this up. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like... Uh, yeah, he he he, he, fl he flew a lot. Um, he he spent most of his later years flying the planet, the world, uh, Latin America, across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, you know, and, and and supporting other people fly the world under a banner as well. Um, yeah, I mean that that's how he spent most of his latter years in Africa in the safari. Um, he enjoyed the wildlife, the nature there. Um, but I think the last year really started getting difficult for him where his body couldn't keep up with what his mind was used to uh, in terms of physical ability, mental stamina. You know, he's got dementia uh, just before COVID around. And then I think COVID didn't help, exasperated everything. He couldn't travel. Um, and so you, you could tell conversations with him started getting really short. Sentences got a lot shorter. Um, and yeah, that was, um, yeah. And so, yeah. And then I think it was about two weeks ago, he got a stroke. Um, and then part, part of his body wasn't uh, working anymore after the stroke. And so, yeah, I think then he just shut off and said, I, you know, let's, let's, let's call it quits, you know. I've had a great life and yeah, I think mentally he just shut off, wanted to see us all. So I'm lucky to have seen him um, before he passed away. And yeah, it was quite a, yeah, he went pretty quick from then. Once he got the heart stroke, it just within a week, bang, he was gone. And it was pain. But the other thing is then they found cancer in him, right? And it's like that anyway, then the pancreas cancer. So it's like not a, not a good cancer to have. And he just went weaker and weaker and weaker and just pain. So pain alleviation, lots of drugs, switch off and then go. Anyway. On well, an extraordinary life of an extraordinary man. And yeah. uh, like we said, this episode is in uh, dedication to the great lives of uh, Sir Robert Black and Heinz Rust and to the generation which they bequest their wisdom upon. And uh, hopefully everyone's enjoyed uh, season one of uncut and we'll be back next week with season two in a very different format and we're going to mix it up a bit more and, and have a lot more fun so yeah thanks thanks for that thanks for all of you listening to this um yeah series um thanks omar for a lot of your support throughout this as well uh of course and, and true true great friend uh, amazing how we met and uh, yeah no super glad to be a friend of yours it's really my honor and distinction. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.